There's different ways to preach sermons. Uh, a, a, a kind of default and typical way that we preach sermons, and one which we emphasize, is called expositional preaching. Uh, expositional preaching is where you take a passage of the Bible and, and uh, you know, say 2 Samuel chapter 10, and you move through chapter 10 verse by verse. And, and you move through and you explain it. That's called expositional preaching, where you're, you're moving through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's a, a default style in our church. Uh, I'm, I'm often preaching through books of the Bible, and I'm often pausing and going to other sections of the Bible or doing other sermon series and whatnot, but we're typically doing expositional preaching. Another style of preaching is what's known as topical, where you're taking a topic, like, say, angels, uh, or, or, or justice, or heaven, or hell, or something, and you're moving through the whole Bible. The Bible itself has 66 books. You're moving from Genesis to Revelation, from the first book to the last book, and you're saying, what, what, what does the, the Bible say about this particular topic? Angels, heaven, hell, etc. Now, in doing topical messages, you also have to be careful to exposit whatever section you are in. That is to say, you can't, you can't play Russian roulette with the Bible and just be flipping around and, you know, you're, you're going to pull things out of context. So, topical preaching often requires, on the part of the preacher, a lot of extra work because you have to be meticulous, you have to be well-studied, and, and you got to move through texts, and, and it's a lot of work. But those are two broad ways of preaching, expositional and topical. The topical style of preaching is particularly helpful when things happen in our lives or things are going on in the world. Uh, so if I were preaching through 2 Samuel or whatever, and uh, say something happens that's significant in the culture or in our congregation, say some, a beloved person in our congregation dies, and I left off at 2 Samuel 10 or whatever, I'm not going to pick up at 2 Samuel 11 that Sunday. I'm going to stop and take us to a section of Scripture that maybe talks about life and death or, or mourning or grief or something like that, you see. So pastorally, topical helps with addressing things that go on in the life of the congregation and as well broader things that go in the culture. And that's what I want to do this morning, particularly because of the latter. There is a storm coming. And we need to understand what God's Word says, Genesis to Revelation, with regard to this storm. That said, would you open your Bibles to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Today's message has seven points, and I want to jump right in and get to the first point from the book of Genesis. The first point on your outline is creator and creation. I want to begin without a proper sermon introduction this morning. Instead, I want to get right into the sacred text. And then, in a moment, I will back up to explain the title of today's message, where it aims to go in terms of unpacking uh, biblical truths with, re which, with regard to a specific topic from the ancient world to our modern world, with attentiveness to the law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's message is, is going to focus on a specific topic but it will squarely be textual with law gospel preaching woven through it. And, and before giving you know, an introduction or anything, I just, I just want to jump right into the text. And later I'll come back and say, Here, here's my intro, but it's going to be kind of in the middle of the, of the message. So uh, I'm all over the place this morning. But here we go, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a very familiar verse, but it is a very deep and penetrating verse, a profound verse, a foundational verse, uh, a foundational verse for the topic that I want to talk about this morning, but first we need to lay some foundations. The Bible begins with creation and creator. The rest of this chapter details how the creator creates all things. While this is not a science textbook in the modern sense, this text before us, Genesis, is nonetheless giving us scientific details that correspond to modern cosmology, not to mention reality. The fact is, science points to what this verse says. Namely, the creation has a creator. Scientifically speaking, we know the universe was not always here. Would you follow me on some basic scientific logic? Number one, everything that has a beginning has a cause. Number two, the universe had a beginning. That is a scientific fact. Therefore, the universe had a cause. There's simply no way around this cosmological logic. Uh, there are some who try to get around it because it has clear implications for there being a creator, and they don't want that. So some would reject and, and say, well, I, I, I've heard scientists say that there are subatomic physics that can get us around this. 
But the fact of the matter is, when you understand that science, it's simply not true. Subatomic physics is not a proven exception to premise number one. To get right into the scientific jugular vein here, subatomic particles do not come into being out of nothing. Those who theorize them have to posit that they arise as spontaneous fluctuations of energy contained in the subatomic vacuum, but they do not come out of nothing. Philosopher of science uh, Robert Del Tete accurately sums up the situation, and I quote, there is no basis in ordinary quantum theory for the claim that the universe itself is uncaused, much less for the claim that it sprang into being uncaused from literally nothing. So you see, the cosmological logic is airtight and supported by the scientific data of our modern era. Some people naively think that faith is the opposite of evidence, but that is not true. We believe as Christians, we believe as readers of this book, that, that someone made something. That is reasonable and proven by observational science and evidence. The non-believer, on the other hand, believes without good reason, uh, or, and in fact, they believe the opposite, uh, which is illogical, namely that no one made something out of nothing. I ask you, what is more reasonable, someone making something or no one making something out of nothing? Uh, that said, a relentless skeptic is then going to push back and say, well, then who made God? At which point we need to return to the first premise. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. By definition, God is without beginning, so he requires no cause. Speaking of God, let's return to his word. We left off with one verse. I, I paused on the verse to give you some scientific correlation to what that verse has to say. Now let's move to verse 24 of chapter 1 of Genesis. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their own kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Here we see more details that are also confirmed by science, namely that species procreate after their own kinds. Uh, while skeptics will attack these verses and pose a doctrine of universal common descent that all organisms share a common ancestry, the scientific and forensic evidence is strongly in favor of what we have just read here. Specifically, in the fossil record, it shows that major groups of living organisms originate separately from one another and procreate after their kind. Simply put, chickens make chickens, birds make birds, fish make fish. And this is true for humanity. Humans make humans. Speaking of humans, look at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let him rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis describes the special creation of humanity by God, an intelligent designer and creator. The scientific data lends credibility to this belief that there is an intelligent designer. Intelligence is seen in the precision of the, the cosmos. Now, by precision, I, I mean fine-tuning. The universe itself is fine-tuned uh, for existence and for life itself. Further, the, the human body uh, described here in Genesis is utter, utterly finely tuned for life with profound complexities that cannot be explained by random mutations in a materialist universe. It is mathematically absurd to think that the complexity of human beings has uh, come in a closed system by, by accident and mutation and not by intentional design of an intelligent creator. Just look at our DNA. DNA contains the biological instructions that make each species unique and each individual within a species unique. There's not a person in this room or, or in the world that has your DNA, let, let alone your fingerprints. DNA, along with the instructions that it contains, is passed from adult organisms to their offspring during reproduction, which fits what Genesis says here about them procreating after their, their kinds. With regard to DNA, there are two components. First, there is the molecule itself. Second, there is information embedded in the molecule. Now stop there. What I just said is crazy. There's information embedded in molecules. To illustrate uh, these two components, the molecule itself and then the, the, the information, uh, the computer has been used as an analogy. You, you think about a computer, right? And there's the hardware and there's the software. In this analogy, the molecule itself, a physical chain of chemicals, is, is the hardware that, 
that box or the, you know, the laptop that you have or whatever. And then the DNA is the encoded information that actually determines the results of, of what the cell is doing. That's like the software. You have this code that's embedded inside of that, that hardware that does stuff. Think about this. There is software in our bodies. And the software in our bodies is so much more complex than what Apple or Microsoft or Lynx or whoever else can come up with. Science scholar Dr. Stephen Meyer explains, whether we are looking at a hieroglyphic in inscription, a section of a, of a text in a book, or computer software, if you have information and you trace it back to its source, invariably you come to an intelligence. Therefore, when you find information inscribed along the backbone of the DNA molecule in the cell, the most rational inference based upon our repeated experience is that an intelligence of some kind played a role in the origin of that information. The information-rich features of DNA provide further confirmation that our universe was created and designed by God. As the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Church of Rome, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now, Paul is arguing that the Creator creation is evident in observable phenomenon. Genesis is arguing that it is God who made this phenomenon. Uh, mind you, not any old God. The book of Genesis is arguing for a specific God, the God of this revelation, the God of this book, the God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit, who is a loving God, a holy God, who made us to image Him and have a loving relationship with Him. Look back at the text, verse 27. God created man in His image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God creates us in His image. God loves us. He makes humanity a, a special creation. He creates humanity, male and female, the text says. There's, there's science here in the text. Uh, I'm moving from the ancient world to give you cor correlation from modern science so that, that you see, look, faith and reason belong together. Look at the science. There's male and female. The account is giving us basic biology. Mind you, this is thousands of years before the discovery of the cell by Robert Hooke in 1665, not to mention the discovery of the cell's nucleus, discovered by Brown in 1831, not to mention the discovery of DNA we were talking about in the late 1860s and later the double helix structure of the DNA in the 1950s by Watson and Crick. This is written long time before that. In any case, we know today, as scientists report, the nucleus of each cell, the DNA packaged in thread-like structures, exists which are called chromosomes, aside from deformities that happen, of course, Human cells contain 23 pairs of chromosomes. One set of chromosome comes from the mother, while the other comes from the father. The 23rd pair is the sex chromosomes, while the rest of the 22 pairs are called autosomes. Biologically, female individuals have two X chromosomes, XX, while those who are biologically male have one X and one Y chromosome, so they are referred to as XY. Males are XY, females are XX. Biologically, females inherit an X chromosome from their father and the other X chromosome from their mother. Biologically, males always inherit their X chromosome from the mother. This is a complex way of saying what verse 27 says, he made them male and female. This is scientifically and biblically the way that it is. That said, skeptics of the Bible who want to nitpick us for uh, believing the things that we believe, they will attack and they'll say, aha! Uh, what about intersex people? Uh, well, that, no, that, that actually doesn't work. Intersex individuals do not nullify the sexual binary any more than a person who was born with one arm nullifies the design for two arms. The skeptic may then shift and say, okay, well, what about people who were born with atypical genitalia where it's not immediately obvious whether they are male or female? Now, the key word here uh, in, the, in the retort of the skeptic is atypical. It's atypical. We already noted that there are deformities that take place in chromosomes. It's atypical. Uh, and for that matter, it's a very small number. And in any of these rare, rare cases where it is unclear at birth, a child's sex can be discovered with genetic testing, ultrasound, and other evaluative tools, which help discover the gender that in time, typically, in these atypical cases, in time typically develops and is very clear. But again, these are mutations or abnormalities. They are exceptions to the rule and not the rule. 
The skeptic may then persist against the Christian who stands with reason and science and scripture, and, and they may persist and object to us, well, you cannot expect me to believe that humanity begins with this Adam and Eve, can you? How can you believe that? I, I, I thought you were an educated person. You know, where did you grow up? You know, you know, in the sticks somewhere? You think there's an Adam and Eve? Now, the thing is that we need to point out at this point that even secular science tells a story of humanity that involves a single man and a single woman. Quoting an educated bioengineer and science journalist, the Y chromosome is passed down identically from father to son. So mutations or point changes in the male sex chromosome can trace the male line back to the father of all humans. By contrast, DNA from the mitochondria, the energy powerhouse of the cell, is carried inside the egg, so only women pass it on to their children. The DNA hidden inside of mitochondria, therefore, can reveal the matrilineal lineage to the ancient Eve. This is secular science. It is worth noting, in fact, uh, in science, specifically in the field of human genetics, scientists actually speak of mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam. That's what they call them, mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam. There's Wikipedia entries for each one. Mitochondrial Eve is said to be the matrilineal common ancestor, the MRCA, of all living humans. All living humans descend in an unbroken line from this one woman. And via Y-chromosomal Adam, all humans are patrilineally descended. What we can say with fair scientific certainty is that every man alive today descended from one man and every human alive today descended from one woman. Of course, the story of secular science differs with the sacred text that we have in front of us, for it is limited with its discipline, which is dominated today by those who have managed to hoodwink the public into believing that science and faith are at odds, that the Bible is at odds with reason. And this just isn't the case. The fact of the matter is that our study of science comes from people of faith, specifically believers of this book. Check the facts. The founders of science were people of faith, and faith did not mean for them, not to mention for Moses, uh, for, for David, for Jesus, for the apostles. It did not mean for them checking your brains at the door when you come to church. It actually meant you need to put your thinking caps on when you come to church, uh, and especially in this church. Uh, you're, you're, you're following me? Okay. Verse 22, you're getting DNA lessons and all kinds of stuff. Verse 22, look at the text. Genesis chapter 2, verse 22. Let's zoom in on this creation account. We read here of, of God's special creation of the woman. The Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Here the Bible gives us this account of God creating, creating the man, Y chromosomal Adam, and the woman, mitochondrial Eve. To create the woman, uh, God takes matter from the man and uses that to animate a, a body and breathe into it a soul. Here you have the textual proof for Adam and Eve, but again the skeptics are going to push back on this, already noting that they have a concept of an Adam and Eve, but they're going to push back on our account here, and they're going to say, again, I thought, I thought you were smart, you know? Well, you, you think God, like, just ripped a rib out and just formed a lady? Is that what you think? Well, I, I'm going to turn to Dr. Georgia Purdom, who holds a PhD in molecular genetics from Ohio State University. Listen to her explanation on this account. She writes, God chose from Adam the one bone that could regenerate itself. She explains, although all bones can repair themselves, ribs can regenerate themselves. Ribs are commonly removed during surgeries that require bone grafts in other parts of the body. The rib is removed from the periosteum, a tissue surrounding the bone, much like a banana would be removed from its peel while keeping most of the peel intact. The, the periosteum must remain as it contains osteoblasts that build the new rib bone. I, I wish we had time to read all of our, her article. It is absolutely fascinating. I, I quote from it just that little piece to say that this text stands up to scientific scrutiny, as well to sociological and ethical scrutiny and dimensions. Look at what the text says again in verse 24. This isn't just biology, it's sociology. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they will become one flesh. This is sociology. Uh, here we have monogamy, a foundation of social order. 
We have a union between two individuals that, that is going to lay for the making of families, the raising of children, and the giving of order to society. The, the, the facts of the matter in terms of our modern social statistics and science backs this up. Social scientists regularly tell us, and I'll quote from one, that marriage is the foundational relationship of all society. All of the relationships in society stem from the father-mother relationship. And these other relationships thrive most if that father-mother relationship is simultaneously a close and closed husband-wife relationship. Good marriages are the bedrock of strong societies, for they are the foundations of strong families. In marriage are contained the five basic institutions, all basic tasks of society. One, family. Two, faith, or, or church for us. Three, school. Four, the marketplace. And five, the government. These fundamental tasks, well done, in unity between father and mother, make a very good marriage. Within a family built on such a marriage, the child gradually learns to value and perform these five fundamental tasks of every competent adult and of every functional society. To quote from another source, a major survey published by Harvard Medical School shows that married men are healthier overall, live longer than men who were never married and divorced. For women, marriage provides security and a safe environment to raise children who ultimately provide both spouses with lifelong fulfillment. Further, married couples also have happier, healthier relationships than cohabiting couples. Marriage is not, not only vitally important for couples, but it is also the major determinant of children's health and success. The stats show this over and over. If you look at mental health issues, uh, uh, incarceration, uh, uh, social ills, and you look statistically at this disproportionately, this, this comes through those who are born in homes that don't have a mom and a dad. The text of Genesis is giving us science, it's giving us social order. You, you, you see, God has a design just as he embedded code into the cell, uh, this software that has information in it. He has also embedded in society a way for things to work. God designed it this way, and doing it his way worked. Look at verse 25. When they did it his way, how did they feel? Verse 25, the man and the woman were naked and they were not ashamed. It was great. They felt great. When they did it God's way, they felt great. Now in the next chapter, they lose their shamelessness. Confusion comes, which brings us to the next point on the outline, condemnation and confusion. The confusion comes through forces of darkness. In the account, we see the devil. We see the serpent. He sows seeds of confusion. He plays with their pride. In, in, in their pride, they think that they knew better than God. Uh, we read in our public reading of Scripture this morning from the book of Judges how they did what was right in their own eyes. And oh, what a mess they made. They did what they said was right. In our modern day, uh, people don't like it when we begin to talk about uh, others doing things wrong or whatever. And they'll say, you know, who are you to judge me? Who are you to judge me? You sound so judgmental. And uh, to which we, we need to respond. So do you think I'm wrong for judging you? Yeah. So who are you to judge me that I'm wrong for judging you then? I mean, how do we even get started with this? You're judging me for judging you, right? Uh, it's sort of like saying I can't speak a word of English. You just contradicted yourself. If we can't judge others, then how can you make the statement that it's wrong to judge others? Or the statement that the wonderful philosopher and poet Tupac uh, used to say, only God can judge me. Um, and you know what? He's right about that in a sense. Uh, uh, but the part that he's wrong about is kind of the flippancy in it. Uh, th that's not a good thing that God is our judge. Uh, I'd rather have you all as my judge. Uh, we can bribe and, you know, uh, gaslight and do all sorts of things to convince people that we're fine, but you're never going to pull a fast one on God. It's not a good thing that God is our judge. Why not? Because his holy law is perfect. And one violation of his law incurs the, the, the penalty of his law, which is death and separation from him. That's not a good thing. It's a bad thing because we've all sinned. And so we're all condemned, all of us. And in this, might I say, there is no us and those guys over there in the Christian faith because we maintain that we're all sinners. Uh, so so we, we, in a sense, are judging everyone because everyone is a sinner. We're all sinners. And with that said, let me take a sharp U-turn or a sharp turn in this message to digress. I said up front that I wanted to get into the text. I needed to lay some foundations, creator, creation, condemnation, confusion. And from these foundations, then, I can turn 
uh, to address the topic that I want to address today and give the introduction that normally a preacher would give. Normally you have a, a you know, kind of introduction to pull people in, but I'm doing it in the middle of the message, so here it goes. The title of my message this morning, church, is Pride Cometh Before. In a moment, you'll see where I'm going with this popular idiom for today's title. If you haven't already um, uh, kind of thought about where I'm going with some of the scientific facts that I've presented thus far, I've mentioned thus far by looking at uh, rumblings around you in the culture, and uh, I'm trying to offer you a timely apologetic sermon for saints from Scripture. Uh, you know, one of my favorite times of the year comes around November. I love November. I, I love it when the stores start decking the halls with holiday decor for Christmas. I am a Christmas nut. I, I just love Christmas. I have my tree up until February, partly because, uh, you know, we got a lot going on. But I love having the tree up early, long. I love it. I don't know what it is, but I love Christmas genre in general. Christmas decorations, Christmas music, Christmas movies, Christmas food, Christmas movies. Oh, Christmas movies. Home Alone, the best. Elf, the best. A Christmas story, oh, that's great. It's a Wonderful Life. I love taking naps to It's a Wonderful Life. And of course, to enter into the fray, the best Christmas movie ever, Die Hard. Oh, what a classic. <laughs> now that said, in past months, our local stores have been slowly decking the halls for what is becoming a significant secular holiday season that officially began on June 1st. So we're a few days into it by now. It's been gradually popping up in stores uh, the last month. What pumpkin spice is to October and November, what peppermint is to December, the rainbow is to June. Ironically, for Christians, the rainbow is a symbol of judgment in the Bible, but in our age, it is symbolizing this idea of no judgment. Who are you to judge? In Scripture, it symbolized humanity living under God's rule, living as God has made us to be, but today it is all about freedom from God's rule and doing what feels is true in their own self, regardless of what they were made or happened to be. In case you're living in a bubble, uh, June is officially Pride Month in our country, and hence the title Pride Cometh Before. Now I've cut it off right here, I've cut the idiom short, you might know the idiom is Pride Cometh Before the Fall, but I've cut it off uh, uh, short here, um, uh, I've cut it off short here for a reason. But first, the fuller one, Pride Cometh Before Fall. Uh, there is a, uh, this saying is really close to the wording of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, in the English Standard Version, it translates it this way, Pride come, goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before the fall. We use the line, uh, Pride comes before fall, as a caution against overconfidence and arrogance that can lead one to fall into something that they weren't ready for. That said, pride, uh, in, in the saying, and generally speaking, in life and through history, has actually been acknowledged as a vice, not a virtue. Pride was never something to celebrate. But here we are, it's Pride Month. Pride is the quintessential, according to scriptures, the quintessential human sin. This is how the forces of darkness, the devil got started. This is how humanity was duped in, in the text of Genesis that we'll get back to. As one commentator notes, it doesn't matter what our creator who designed us knows what's best for us, loves us, and died for us says. To the proud heart, what matters is simply what we want. What sinful, fallible human beings who don't know everything are in rebellion against God and have depraved minds and desires what they want. Pride always leads to more sin as we arrogantly think more of ourselves and less of God in His revealed Word. It's really people shaking their fist at God to declare that they are autonomous and they can do whatever they want to do. Um, the month in secular culture is said to be Pride Month. More, more specifically, it is pride around LGBTQIA+. Uh, now, if you haven't been following things or, or, or keeping up with what's going on in the culture, let me define that for you. LGBTQIA is an acronym that stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer or questioning, intersex, asexual. There are many other terms such as non-binary and pansexual that people use to describe their experiences or their gender, um, sexuality, and physiological sex characteristics. Um, with, with this, we have not just a celebration of it, but we also have a commemoration uh, of past injustices and sufferings that this community has had. Uh, for, for the second part, I, I do think that is something that humans need to pause on and think about because 
Uh, we have history of abuses and injustices and sufferings, and this community no doubt has uh, suffered at, at the hands of many people in history. Uh, many root the origins of Pride Month to riots around a gay bar that was owned by a mafia in New York City in 1969 that was raided by police, uh, police in this particular bar who were taking bribes and doing all sorts of sordid backdoors, evil abuses of power. Um, they were raided by police in, in, in that June of 69, and they tried to take everyone, over 100 people, to jail. Things escalated, crowds came, people started throwing things at the cops, uh, uh, started setting things on fire, and the next day, 1,000 people descended on the scene and violence continued. Years after this, uh, small pride marches began to pop up around June. Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, major cities. Uh, looking back on, on, on those two days that are referred to now as the Stonewall Riots, which have progressively grown with progressive culture uh, to many marches that are much more substantial. And this really, this month in general, uh, now seems not to be a minority position, but it is the majority. If, if, you, if you're talking about this, you know, you're, you're going to get yourself in trouble. The symbol of pride has become the rainbow, and that rainbow is everywhere, which I said it's that, which is why I said earlier that sort of the, the, what pumpkin spices to October, the rainbow is to June. It's on bumper stickers, retail stores, t-shirts. Starbucks released new rainbow cups and tumblers. Uh, pride is very popular today. Pride is very cool today. And for those in a culture like ours that value cool as virtue, there is pressure on us to assimilate, to be cool, to be liked. The pressure is on to virtue signal. I don't see your rainbow. Um, given our polarized political culture, this is rather tense. I, I think of, you know, just in the past few years, I think of how wearing a mask, a, a personal decision, in our polarized culture triggered people on one side or the other. Likewise, not wearing a mask would trigger people on one side or the other. Uh, there's all sorts of meaning that's embedded in the wearing of a mask and moral assessments that are made of people who choose uh, to do one or the other. And so too, like the mask, no mask uh, triggering that takes place, the rainbow has become that. Where's your rainbow? Ooh, you have a rainbow, right? And lines get drawn. Now, mind you, I cut the idiom short that pride comes before dot, 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 because this is not new. We've seen this before. The rainbow symbol is not new. It goes back to the 1970s. Before that, they had a pink triangle. Before that, there are other symbols and artworks and whatnot that people use for expressing sexual pride. Pride has come before. It's not new. That said, there is a newness in its wide acceptance by powerful elites in our culture, from ruling presidents all the way down to the plebeians, the regular people. In June of 1999, President Bill Clinton said, every June in America as Gay and Lesbian Pride Month. In 2011, President Barack Obama also declared, in fact, um, that he offered a, a full declaration of it. And here you have a quote from it. Uh, further, he illuminated the, the colors of gay pride onto the White House in, in full display. Now, lest we think this is a partisan issue. Oh, there's Pastor Matt. He's probably a right-winger picking on, you know, the left or whatever. Oh, no, I pick on both sides. You should know better. 2019, President Trump took to Twitter. Oh, I used to love that Twitter. Uh, and, and I quote from the tweet, celebrate LGBT Pride Month and recognize the astounding contributions LGBT people have made to our great nation. And of course, there's old Joe today, and he's been all over it. He even sells merch. He's got merch tables of it. In a recent address commemorating Pride Month, uh, President Biden boasted that 14% of, of federal agency appointees identify uh, as belonging to this, to this movement. Uh, I recently read this line, uh, that politicians expand power by sowing discontent. Think about that. Politicians expand power by sowing discontent. How true. Now, presidents aren't the only one pushing the agenda. In fact, the powers of our culture, our legacy media conglomerates to our major universities, our big money maker companies of the day, they're all into this. On a consumer's note, it makes sense. It's a chance not only to make money by selling things, but also to let progressive culture know that you're on the right side, or rather the left side, I guess, of the culture wars. Which, uh, which brands do you support? What clothes are you wearing? It's, it, it, are those clothes pro-pride clothes? Uh, Target has been in the media a lot lately with hundreds of pride products on their website, including t-shirts, books, furnishings, including so-called tuck-friendly women's swimsuits 
that are made for men so that they can tuck their stuff to appear more like a woman. I will spare you the picture of that. I'm not going to put it up there. Uh, but it is worth showing you one pride t-shirt uh, featuring a drag queen, quote-unquote, Bible girl who is wearing devil horns that you can get at Target. It's not just clothes, it's basic consumables. Uh, Colgate, the toothpaste company, uh, runs an ad that is labeled Smile with Pride. It's in your toothpaste. It's in your beverages. What coffee are you drinking? Is that pro-pride coffee? What clothes are you wearing? Pro-pride? What beer are you drinking? Is it pro-pride? Just recently, the media was blowing up over Bud Light, who platformed a man that went through a gender uh, transition on TikTok, now identifying as a she to promote their beer on YouTube. And then there was a leak of a Bud Light um, you know, can with the guy in a dress on, on the beer. There was pushback from consumers that led to a backlash against uh, those concerned consumers. And from it, we get a new word that's going to end up in the dictionary. It's called Bud Lighting. Have you heard of Bud Lighting? Um, it might have just sounded like in the past, like drinking beers with your friends. Let's go Bud Lighting. Um, you know, Bud Lighting is a new pejorative phrase for those who are concerned about this, for, for those who boycott companies that promote sexual stuff they disagree with. You're Bud Lighters, you see. What happens to customer is always right. What happened to freedom of speech? That totally goes out the window. And of course, companies want to make money. And of course, companies are being shaped by powerful lobbies. Some cultural critics have caught on to this greedy trend, coining the phrase slacktivism, because it is a slacker's way of getting involved in a cause by slapping a, rain, a rainbow sticker onto something in the window of your store without actually engaging in any meaningful activism. This is uh, true for all sorts of issues, in particular in social media, where countless people think that liking, clicking, sharing, tweeting is the same thing as actually marching on Selma or the Montgomery bus boycott. That's activism. Getting arrested, getting hoses and dogs turned on you, getting thrown in jail, that's activism. Clicking like is not activism. I mentioned presidents a moment ago. Interestingly, in 1966, when Biden was a senator from Delaware, he voted in favor of the Defense of Marriage Act which defined marriage between a man and a woman and declared that states were not required to recognize same-sex marriages from other states. Two years before that, he was on board with a measure that called to cut federal funds to schools that taught the acceptance of homosexuality. Up to 2006, on Meet the Press, when he was asked about George Bush's support of the federal marriage amendment, Biden said, and I quote, we already have a law, the Defense of Marriage Act. He said, we've all voted, Defense of Marriage Act. The same is true for President Obama in 2004 on public television in Chicago said during an interview, and I quote, marriage is between a man and a woman. So what happened? This is the storm that is brewing. And in the lifetime of my children, things have, have really shifted. What happened? There's pressure. There's lots of pressure and cultural forces, not to mention spiritual forces. We must not forget the spiritual dimension. We must not forget as people love the book, how the book explains it. Is Genesis still in front of you? I hope it is. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. What does it say? The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. There's a, a spiritual dimension going on. The, the serpent, forces of darkness, the serpent bamboozled, hoodwinked, and led astray humanity. Mind you, humanity can't blame it on the devil. The devil made me do it because they knew better. They knew God's love. They knew God loved them. They knew God's law, and they knew that God's law was good for them. They experienced what it was to, to be with God and not have any shame, but they chose otherwise. Adam and Eve felt that it was right to do what they wanted to do. Look at Genesis 3, 6. It describes them looking at the forbidden fruit and wanting it and rationalizing it and saying that this is right for me. This is what I feel inside, so it's right for me. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 cautions us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. After they ate, spiritual death came to humanity, and along with it, the slow effects of biological death, and along with it, the social effects and social disorder that came, and, and along with it, shame. Genesis 3-7, look at it. It records that the eyes of both of them were open. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. They made loin coverings for themselves. They have to cover up. The shameless become shameful. What is shame? 
It is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress that is caused by our conscience. And by being aware that we have done wrong or we have engaged in some foolish behavior, then we have this experience of, of shame. I would submit to you that's, that that's a part of the software that God has woven into us, that we experience shame when we do wrong because it, it, it works to deter us and to draw us back to Him. That said, this is what makes a topic like today so difficult because it's not theoretical. Uh, it's personal. Uh, people have feelings of, of shame about past. People have feelings of shame about things done to them. There are many in the church who've been saved from this LGBTQIA plus uh, uh, context. Many in the church who struggle with same-sex attraction. Uh, many who are going through this. You have people close to you, loved ones, children, parents, and, uh, and siblings. Uh, listen to me. This is a safe place. Today's message is not to malign or to marginalize any group. Some of you are like, I finally got my friend to come to church, and this is what you're talking about. I, I know, I know. <laughs> we don't, we're not like sitting around talking about this every Sunday, you know. Oh, those people or whatever. This is a safe place to, to, to push back and know that you, you'll be loved and you're welcome and this isn't a, a gotcha sermon or anything like that. Look, our, our faith and our understanding of science is that God made an order to things. That's, that's why I started the way I started to say, look, we have reasons to believe there's God. We have reasons to believe that there's male and female. We have reasons to believe that there's like an order and a harmony to this. Uh, our reasons for believing this isn't because we hate some other group or something like this. Uh, uh, further, we believe that there's a confusion that has resulted uh, by taking what God has designed and using it for something else. I mean, you know, you can eat soup with a fork, but it's a lot better to use a spoon for it. That's what the spoon is designed for. And so, too, we could take our bodies and social order and, and other things, and we could use them for other things. That's within your right or whatever. But you're going to miss out on the fullness of the design that God has made. There are spheres of, of sovereignty between family and government and church. Uh, there's order, and there's a goodness to it. Can you imagine running a company without a mission statement, without leadership, without HR, without checks and balances, just a free-for-all? How, how's that company going to go? We are in a free-for-all. Planet Earth is in a moral free-for-all. And, and that's why we have storms like what we have. The Apostle Paul explains it like this, uh, so that we could stay in Genesis. I'll put it up in front of you. Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. This is what I was doing in the beginning of my sermon, giving reasons that we can see in cosmology for the existence of God. He's made Himself evident. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be, be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. In our public reading from Judges, that's exactly what we saw when they were doing what was right in their own eyes. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned their natural function of the women and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. This has happened before. This is going on for a long time. Paul's talking about this in the first century and even before where humans take God's social order and take what's natural and they do things unnatural with it. Paul's making a case from science. He's arguing from nature. You can see that, that, that men's bodies are, are made a certain way, that women's bodies are made a certain way and, and there's a design to that. But then in our sin, we, we say, no, we don't care what nature is. We care what we want to do and what feels right to us. It's interesting with regard to gender that we tolerate this, but with regard to other domains we don't. I have in mind race in particular. You recall a few years back, Rachel Dolezal? She was an instructor of Africana studies at Eastern Washington University. 
She was president of a NAACP chapter in Spokane, Washington. She's a white lady, and she purported herself to just be a fair-skinned African-American. And then the news found out. She tried to cover up with a black guy who she said was her dad, and it got really messy. And then her two white parents, uh, they found him and put him on the news, and they go, yeah, she's white, you know. And, uh, you know, then NAACP wasn't so happy about that. Now, her appeal is just the same, though. But I feel black. I feel black. That's what's inside of me. Uh, just recently uh, in the news, there's a, a British man who in the last eight years has been transitioning from a white Brit to a Korean. And he's been on TikTok with each uh, uh, facial surgery to make his facial features uh, look less uh, uh, British and more Korean. And in the most, uh, most recent one, you know, he's got all kinds of bandages and swollenness and what have you. And he says, I'm so happy for the last eight years uh, I finally look like what I am inside. I am Korean. And we go, yeah, no, that doesn't work. Like, we intuitively go, you know, and I'm not, I'm not picking on this to be a, a gotcha kind of thing. I mean, my heart grieves for it. He's, he's, he's a, someone made in the image of the God that we worship. I'm just pointing it out to say culturally, we wouldn't tolerate it with regard to race, but when it comes to something... Race, arguably, is a social construct, but when it comes to something that is hard science, we tolerate it. Why do we do this? Because there's confusion. We've rebelled against God. Uh, we, we use these arguments like, well, I was born this way, but according to this passage, it says, yeah, we're born this way, namely, we're born in sin. And so we have to be careful with born this way kinds of arguments. Uh, further, logically speaking, being born this way doesn't free you to live out anything because you can't get an ought from an is. And everyone knows that. Um, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, or, or say murderers, sociopaths, have particular uh, firings in their brains. Uh, you, you, you can't appeal to having a certain genetic disposition for anger and bloodthirst and say, well, I was born this way so that it excuses me from criminal behavior. It doesn't work. Now, like the genetic code, there is a spiritual code that passes on and that spiritual code that passes on what Paul is teaching us and elsewhere in Scripture is that we're born sinners. This means we're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. Now, speaking of genetics and confusion, think of our day. We no longer have a shared definition of male and female or even of human being. And I think ultimately this is the byproduct of not having a shared definition of God, which is why I began the sermon with God and wove in some scientific support for clarity uh, in the face of confusion that somehow we believers are, are, are going against science or something. In Genesis, we're told that God made humanity in His image. After the fall, humans have tirelessly tried to repay the favor by making countless gods in our images. No wonder we don't know what humans are. Uh, no wonder we are living in an age that struggles to define male and female because we are being told today that male and female are not real. But instead, social constructs like race that are imposed on us, we intuitively get this. We are told that you, you, you can change your pronouns. We're so confused. And I'm talking about this because as Christians, we're caught in the crosshairs. We have teachers in this room, healthcare providers in this room, policymakers in this room, entertainers, artists, and you're constantly caught in the crosshairs. I was speaking with a, a school counselor recently, and they were telling me, you know, they have students coming to them, and, and a, a girl coming to them saying, I'm a boy. Um, and I want, to, I want to change my name to this, and I want to go by these pronouns, and I want access to, uh, to, to hormones and whatnot so that I can begin transitioning. And under policy, that counselor cannot tell the parents. I mean, you, you, you can't go to the mall and get earrings without your mom. You can't go to a tattoo shop and, 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 and get a tattoo without your parents' consent. But we are living in an age now where our young children can begin transitioning, and they can't tell the parents. And as Christians, I'm, I'm getting this, which is why I'm talking about it today, because people are saying, Pastor Matt, what do we do? This is going to be a crazy month. The rainbows are popping up everywhere. What do we, how, what do? We do? Oh, we, we're in the crosshairs. I think of 2022, the confirmation hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee for Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, uh, who from sources she identifies as a Christian. Uh, before she joined the Supreme Court, of course, she had to go through that committee, and she was asked by the committee, by a senator, a very simple question. Can you provide a definition for the word woman? Jackson, keep in mind, is a magna cum laude graduate of Harvard College with an earned doctorate, answered as follows, and I quote, 
Can I provide a definition? No, I can't. I'm not a biologist. Since when do we need a biology degree to define something that is so basic to science and society? Of course she knows what a woman is. But if she says what she thinks a woman is, she's going to get canceled. She's going to lose her position. If she sides with science, she's going to lose her position. Now, some actually came to her defense and suggested that she actually wasn't making a compromise, but she was being shrewd. The fact by saying, I'm not a biologist, was a subtle hint that she thinks gender is biological and not a social construct. Who knows? I don't know. But what I do know is that our views as Christians are going to get us in the crosshairs. And what I do know is that we're surrounded by people who need the love of God. And they're mad at God, they're mad at the church, because of where God stands and his people stand on this. A glaring example of how confused our culture is is the fact that the current Assistant Secretary for Health of the United States of America is a human who was born as a man, Richard Levine, who dresses as a woman and now goes by the name Rachel Levine. Understand his position. He is the Senator of the United States government official within the United States Department of Health and Human Services whose job it is to address health and science issues for the country. Yet he is a man who says he's a woman. A pause and think about what this implies about what a woman is, by the way. Makeup, hair, clothes, breast implants, that's what a woman is? No, a woman is not defined by clothes, makeup, hairs, nails, shoes, or any demeanor. A woman is her body and everyone knows that. Women are, women, uh, it's not a social construct. It's not a social construct. Women are, are half of the human mammalian species and they are made in the image of God to carry our young. Their bodies reveal that that is so. Why, why is this so hard? Why are we so confused? Well, Genesis and Romans has explained. We are fallen. We're fallen, and, we, and so we don't want God, and we don't want His ways. And further, there, there are forces at work to undermine God's creation. There's no reason to believe that uh, Levine would have gotten this job of this position if he wasn't wearing women's clothes. There are powerful forces that are putting this stuff in the culture. And politically correct police would say that I'm the monster this morning for bringing it up. In fact, this is what got Babylon B suspended from Twitter. Mind you, Babylon B is a satire comedy group uh, because they tweeted about an article naming Rachel Levine as Man of the Year. Meanwhile, you could do the reverse and not get canceled. I think of USA Today naming the male-born individual here as Woman of the Year. If you disagree, you're canceled. You're labeled a monster. Your words are hate speech. There is no longer a virtue of tolerance in our culture. We used to say tolerance was a virtue, and what tolerance means is that we agree to disagree. You think X, I think Y. Uh, we agree to disagree. Um, you know, that, uh, I'm not trying to shut you down. I'm not trying to cut off your free speech. We just don't see it the same way. Tolerance, that was a virtue. No longer. Tolerance is out the window. It's not tolerance anymore. It's acceptance. If you don't agree with me on this, you, you're, you're out. And that's the storm that is coming and the storm that is upon us. I was reading in the San Francisco-based medical website recently, Healthline, uh, there was the, the, the question, can a man get pregnant? And here's what Healthline tells us. It is possible for men to become pregnant and give birth to children of their own. In fact, it is probably a lot more common than you think. In order to explain, we need to break down some common misconceptions about how we understand the term man. And the article goes on to tear apart man from biology and proceeds to make maleness a matter of subjective identification. In the same way that Dolezal, the white woman, felt black, but wasn't. But if you feel something that's different from what your body is, then that's fine. Even a person with XX chromosomes, working, uh, a working set of ovaries and a uterus, can qualify as a man. Scientifically speaking, this just isn't true. Men cannot get pregnant. A popular retort, though, is, you know, say, trans men are men, trans women are women. Now, here's the thing, though. If we can't define man and women, then those phrases don't even make sense. What, what do you mean by man? What do you mean by woman? In essence, though the claim is positing that whoever feels they're a man is a man. Whoever feels a woman is a woman. And here's the thing, though. Science is not interested in feelings. Science is interested in facts. Um, that, that's just the way that science works. My, my feelings don't change reality. I, uh, to make this point, I often use the, my bathroom scale as an example. And these days, as of late, I don't like what it says about me. 
You scale, you judge, you nasty, I don't feel that weight. I feel 150 right now, thank you. Uh, reality's indifferent to the way that I feel. That, that, that British man is not Korean. You could do whatever you want to your face. You haven't become Korean. Reality's indifferent. Adam and Eve thought that this is what I ought to do. I'm keeping it real to myself. This is what I feel inside. And Genesis 3, 6 describes them looking at the forbidden fruit, rationalizing it. This is what I want. And the end of it was just as Proverbs 14, 12 says, the end is the way of death. After they ate, spiritual death came. Along with it, the slow effects of, of biological death. And since then, 10 out of 10 people die. Why? Because 10 out of 10 people sin. And that's the bad news. And even further, it gets worse because Tupac was right. God is our judge. And so that gives us reason to tremble at the reality that we've rebelled against the one who has made us. Now, thankfully, to the bad news, there is good news. And that brings us to this point of covenant in Christ. And hopefully you still have Genesis in front of you. Genesis 3.15. God promises in the face of their rebellion to put enmity between you, the kingdom of darkness, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. This is the first allusion to the gospel, that God was going to send one through woman, female, who is going to be born who would crush the kingdom of darkness. There's, there's not time to get into all of this, but quickly, the last section of the Bible I want to show you is to move you to the Gospel of John. So if you would move there quickly. The Gospel of John picks up the Genesis account to say that the one who was promised to come has come. And that is none other than God the Son who has become a man in the flesh to die for us. Look at John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Because of the fall, we don't want Him, we don't see Him. Look at verse 10. He's in the world, and the world was made through Him. God the Son, the holy triune God. The world did not know Him. He came to His own, verse 11, and those who were His own did not receive Him, but as many received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Even those who believe in His name, who are born... Not of the blood of the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The point of covenant is promise. And God promised, gave a covenant in Genesis 3.15 that he was going to send one. And God didn't send a third party. He came himself. This is what's so beautiful about our faith. We're not worshiping a God who's not willing to get down in the trenches. We're not worshiping a God who from the heavens is shaking his, his finger. <coughs> Excuse me. You sinners, you sinners. We're worshiping a God who has come down in the mess and was willing to die for us. He dwelt among us, verse 14. We saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. That brings me to the next point, compassion and clarity. Jesus came and he died for our sins. Jesus came and he made disciples and birthed the church. Jesus came and he modeled for us a life of compassion and clarity. Clarity, he was full of truth. Compassion, he was full of grace. As it relates to, uh, you know, the topic of clarity, this is why this morning I'm trying to give you some talking points. So if someone says, you know, what is a woman or what is a man? You can say, well, uh, you know, a woman is someone who has two X chromosomes. What is a man? Well, a man is one who has an X and Y chromosome. Uh, that's what male and female is. Um, and, and you, you know, you keep it simple and share some science and be clear or whatever. But again, I'm not trying to model these things for you so that you have gotcha moments, you see. There's a tendency for many Christians to be cowardly, to run away and not speak, or on the other hand, to be cocky and cut people off. We don't need more cowards or, or cocky types. We need Christians. Uh, we're, we're in this cancel culture. For Christians, we, we don't have the luxury of canceling people. We are called to compassion. We are commanded to communicate truth and love. Jesus is full of grace and truth. That said, Jesus was killed for speaking the truth, and so we also need to be prepared if you have John in front of you, you can turn to the 15th chapter. In verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were in the world, John 15, 19, the world would love its own. But because you are not, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world will hate you. Look, I, you know, a message like this, I'm going to get emails. And, you know, I mean, that's just the way it goes. And if you share it, you're, you know, you're, stuff's going to happen to you too. Uh, we're in Los Angeles. This is a huge issue. 
Uh, if you're an L.A. Dodger fan, you've been watching, no doubt, the debacle around the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, uh, a, a, a gay group who dresses up like nuns and mocks Christianity and uh, is going to do a show at the Dodger game. And, you know, people are like, why are you guys doing this? And then the Dodgers are like, okay, we'll uninvite them. And then like five days later, they're like, oh, we re-invited them. And everyone's, you know, upset about it. This leads me to the next point on your outline, capitalism and consumers. I'm not attacking capitalism. I love capitalism, but I need to keep the alliteration going here. I'm not whipping on free markets, but the point is to remind you what makes this more complex is that big business. Oh, don't get me started on big pharma either because they're making a ton of money on all this transitioning stuff. They're, they're, that, that's what complicates it. And so th there's a calling for us uh, to, if we're really going to be activists and not slacktivists, uh, that, that we have to maybe refrain from some things and think through some things. Babylon B had a great one on this. It was, uh, wife calls off target boycott five seconds after walking into Walmart. I love that. Uh, they had another one on Babylon B. Study finds target going woke has gotten more families out of debt than Dave Ramsey. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, it means like, yeah, you, you, might have to you might have to change some things. You know, we have to think about consumerism, not just in the culture, but also consumerism in the church. Uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of churches are prone to consumerism, and so you're not allowed to talk about these things because, you know, people aren't, aren't going to want to come back. If you confront sin or talk about this, people aren't going to want to come back. In my, in my own life story, a co-worker at church who was a Christian started to confront me about the sinfulness of my life, and I self-identified as a Christian. And one day I told him, I, like, leave me alone, man, I'm a Christian. He said, then why are you living your life the way you're living it? He was judging me. He was judging me. But I knew that he loved me. He invited me to church. I came. I heard about Jesus. I heard about how he died for me. My life was changed. Because someone cared enough to say, you're making a mess of your life. The way you're living is not right. You're living in a way that doesn't go with God's order. This leads us to the next point of confrontation and calling. We, we have to confront not only others who we love, but also the spiritual forces. As Ephesians 6 tells us, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, spiritual forces of darkness, wickedness, and heavenly places. Uh, the devil is on the prowl. Children are being targeted. Media, schools, medicine. Uh, and so we, we need to be mindful of the tendency of our culture to cancel and be, be reminded of the tendency of our culture to make it us and them. Th these people are not our enemies. They're image bearers of the God we worship. And we are just like them. We've, re we've rebelled. And in our pride, we've done stuff. And this is a, a, a growing population. Over the last 10 years, it went from 3% up to 7%, according to recent Gallup polls. But we, ha we have to call out and we have to have hearts of compassion with regard to this. Uh, so often, as a church, we have uh, engaged in ways that are ungodly. They are ungodly. The cowards who say nothing, or the, you know, the cocky types who are just out to attack others. This leads us to the final point of today's message, confession and the church. I was reading this from a Christian leader who uh, struggles with same-gender attraction, and he writes, the, the list of past homophobic sins include electroshock therapy, concentration camp killings, lombotomies, social and economic discrimination, being locked in jail, hate crimes, murders, police bashings, parental and familial rejection. These are realities. These realities are all symptoms of a world and a church that hatefully rejected in their pride the LGBTQ plus people. And we still live in that world. We still have a church that persecutes and hates gay people who live out a biblically traditional ethic. This Pride Month, we as Christians can remember and repent from the sin of pride and homophobia and culture war landscape that's produced in God's church and in the world. Added, added to you know, what the world has done and how the church has been uh, implicit in it is our, is, is, is our own sin of hypocrisy. I was reminded recently of this when I read an author say, the standard isn't just for LGBTQ plus people. Cisgender heterosexuals don't get to hop off the morality train just because they're attracted to the opposite sex. All of us are to submit to God's design because rejecting God's design for sex is rejecting God, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.8. 
I mean, you know, we tolerate pornography, we tolerate fornication, we, we tolerate all kinds of things in the Christian community. And we have to realize it, this is time for us to confess of, of our hatred, of our hypocrisy. This is time for us to confess of our lack of mission. If we really believe that the gospel is for all people and God has called us to go to all people, then, then why aren't we going? Why aren't we sharing? Why aren't we being intentional? I spoke earlier about slacktivism. The church has been quite slacktivist. We, we like videos. We like posts. We, we'll even post usually from political pundits that are smug and, you know, gotcha-y or whatever. And then when people think about the church, that's what they think of. I'm not talking about winning arguments. I'm talking about loving lost people. And so I hope today's message has given you a sense of the storm that is around us. It isn't a storm for us to run into the shelter. It's a storm for us to be excited about and, and optimistic about and, and to be reminded of where we would be apart from God rescuing us, choosing to save us, and, and, and giving us His Spirit and giving us new life. All of this uh, serves to draw us now to the communion table where we remember what Jesus has done for us, where we sing songs that we give thanks to Him, where, where we confess to Him, there is a God, there is an order, and we have all pushed back against that order. We, we, we all eat from the forbidden fruit. We're, we're all leveled in this. Now, now mind you in, in saying we're all sinners or whatever, this, this isn't to minimize. There are certain sins that wreck particular havocs in culture that are greater than other things. And to be sure, what we are dealing with is wrecking all kinds of, of, of havoc. And so the church must be engaged. We can't run from this. But as we go, remember, why are we going? Because of what we read in John 1. God left heaven to come to the earth for us, to die at our hands, to free us. He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is coming again. So as we come to the table, that, we want to come in repentance and faith seeking him. We want to come and cry out to him for forgiveness and redemption, that you, Lord, alone are God, that you, Lord, ride above the storms, that you will lead your church triumphant through this, and that you would grant us wisdom to know how to speak and how to behave in these times. Let's pray. Let's have communion. Let's continue in worship. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, uh, Lord, that we have a, a church like ours where we can just talk about issues and dig into your word. It breaks my heart that many churches, you get a 20-minute sermon that's like a life coach thing with some Bible verses sprinkled on it. Uh, Lord, but I love that we're able to come here and just press in and spend an hour and think about hard issues. Lord, I pray this morning that your church will be equipped, encouraged. Um, Lord, and, and, and I pray as well that we would be repentant. Um, Lord, th th there's all kinds of things that we continue to do, ways that we continue to wander, uh, ways that, that we have uh, shamed ourselves and you. And Lord, we continue to hide rather than letting go. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that your spirit would move and draw us in confession, draw us in surrender, draw us uh, to know your, your love, draw us uh, to, to experience your presence, your, your presence that we read of this morning where they were naked and unashamed. Lord, like little children running around uh, in the house free without the diaper on, just free and happy. Lord, that you would make us like children, that we would be free in you, and that like children you would give us a, a heart that would be drawn to you. Lord, we come to the communion table now. We remember the work of your Son. Draw our eyes to see him, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.